Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to more of our 300th episode here at Feelin' Film. Like our previous 100th and 200th episode celebrations, we are covering a trilogy. But unlike the previous two that have more than three in their saga, which kind of makes the numbering a little awkward, we are hoping that this trilogy stays as such. We are going all the way back to 1985 and even further back 100 years before that as we discuss the Back to the Future saga. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. Man. I don't have anything interesting Ow, to say. I know. I, know. I have nothing. <laughs> That's all right. What do you want me I, to say? That's the I, power I, I, of love. There well, we I mean, go. You know, that was pretty good. Yeah. Huey there. Okay. <laughs> well, we are not alone on this journey back in time, then to the future, and then back again. <laughs> we are joined by probably the biggest fan of this franchise that we know, and someone who shares our affinity for all things 80s. Please, please put your hands together. Welcome back, Adam Rakoff. Hey guys, thank you so much. This is might be one of my five favorite films of all time. So I'm very excited to be having this chance to discuss it with you and just geek out about everything I love about this movie. Well, I know that both of us got excited when we were talking about this offline during our never ending story episode in preparation for that saying, hey, what are we going to do for our 300th? And Back to the Future has come up, not as necessarily like a contender, but we've talked about it, uh, Aaron and I have. And then I think you kind of pushed it over the edge because we know that, honestly, when, when you come on the show, it's always going to be a good discussion. We we know that there's going to be good energy, great conversation, and we both love this trilogy. So why not bring on somebody that's going to equally boost the just the love of all three movies? So we're glad to have you back, Adam, and we're looking forward to uh, these next episodes and with that being said, we're going to give kind of a weird spoiler alert. I'm not sure that we did this for 100 and 200, but know that with this franchise, at least, we're going to be spoiling all three at any given point. So this is not an isolated incident of spoiler talk. This is really covering spoilers from one, two and three. And honestly, get your coffee ready, sit back and relax. This might be a little bit of a longer conversation just because we're going to be talking about what I personally see is my favorite of the three. The other two are up there too, but this one just vaults itself kind of a measure above. So consider this your spoiler warning as we dive in and go back in time. <laughs> All right. And there probably will be a number of time travel puns here and there as we, as we continue <laughs> yeah. this. And so I halfway apologize, but really don't. So there we go. Well, let's start with some backstory. I know that all three of us have our own history with the film. And so Adam, Get us started with kind of what this film means to you. How does it kind of become one of your favorites? Well, this was the only of the Back to the Future films that I did not see in a theater. Uh, I saw the second two in the theater, but this one I saw for the first time with my family and a really close friend, uh, really uh, another family of who were really close with uh, with our family. We all watched it together in their living room on VHS, of course, at the time. And it was a strange experience because I think it was the first movie where this group of people of all different ages, my younger sister, me, my older brother, my parents, my parents' friends, 
and their kids. We were all watching this movie and having a collective experience where we all loved it. And I think that's sort of why this movie worked so well. It, it It's not a kid's movie, but it's also not a movie for adults necessarily. It really is a movie for everybody. And that's a rare accomplishment, I think, in a film being able to make a movie that really can span generations and make a movie that kids and adults can relate to and enjoy and laugh at and be in suspense watching. There's just so many aspects to this movie that people gravitate towards. And I was, you know, I think I was seven or eight when I saw this. And I was like many millions of other kids my age, just absolutely enamored by this film every aspect of it yeah i just i couldn't wait for more i wanted more and i at one interesting note about this experience because i was seeing it for the first time on vhs is that i saw the version of the movie where at the very end and the delorean flies towards the camera and it says to be continued now that was added to the initial vhs release because at that point they knew based on the box office performance that they were going to make sequels. They didn't have a direct, you know, a specific date uh, as to when they would be released, but they knew it was going to happen. And they inserted this to be continued moment at the very end of the film. So that's what I thought the ending of the movie was. I didn't learn till many years later that the original theatrical cut when the car flies into the camera, it just cuts to a title card where you see Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Leah Thompson. And I'm like, wait a minute, where's the to be continued? This is, it's missing something. So that's the version I, I knew and loved growing up. And it will always kind of be my version of the movie because I never got to see it in the theater. But of course, in preparation for this podcast, I watched the, the latest and greatest 4K Ultra HD edition and it, it's the theatrical version where the to be continued has been i'll say removed when it really wasn't removed it, it just wasn't there <laughs> to begin with and it still kind of irks me i'm like i need that to be continued in there it's something about that really just got me excited and made me want more yeah it's it's just such a great movie so uh, i can't say enough about it and about what i felt seeing this for the first time Aaron, what about you it's like my number 37 film of all time, and I'm okay. probably I'm the lowest by far in the group. So go, so go figure. You know, it's just number 37. But, <laughs> you know, for me, it was just another movie in the 80s that I really enjoyed. I mean, it wasn't... I never had the type of love for the franchise that I think you guys grew up with. In fact, I low-key thought that I didn't like two or three for the longest till till recently even and maybe or maybe not still have some of those feelings we'll get to those points later when we do the rest of the films but you know i just didn't have any association with it past the first movie and so i think that limited how much how special it was for me and so sure i'd seen it you know dozens of times over my life but i remember very distinctly Patrick, you talking about it back in, and I actually looked it up on Letterboxd. Thank you. Thankfully, I'm getting to the point where I've Letterboxd so long that I'm starting to have like this data to pull from. Oh, how, how badly I wish I had this all the way back to the first movie I ever watched. But it you know, says right here, I rewatched it on October 24th. Go figure. 
of uh, 2015. And so I'm very certain we were having a conversation about it. I remember talking and you wanting me to go through the whole series again. And I wrote at the time, I noted that I had watched it as a kid and I thought it was fun and it had inspired my lifelong love of science fiction, which was true. But as an adult, I really realized just that it was one of the best movies overall that I'd ever seen. And I, I was able to understand and kind of appreciate the craft involved in it and not just the fun time travel part of it. And I started to really understand the themes that are being looked at here and the, the things that are being explored more than just, oh, it's a goofy, fun story about Marty and Doc who go back in time. And I think that's because I've seen so many time travel movies in between kind of viewings of this. And I had really started to have more of my adult life shaped by latter science fiction, which is typically a lot different. <laughs> it's very, very different than this. This still stands out as supremely original in that type of genre to me. Um, and so, yeah, I found myself just really falling in love with this as an adult, even just six years ago, more so than ever before. And it's, for me, really distinctly tied to this film. And, you know, like Adam was excited about To Be Continued, and that's understandable if you care about what happens after the fact. For me, I actually would be perfectly fine if we just ended with the car flying off and the credits and it didn't go anywhere. I don't need it to go anywhere. It doesn't mean I don't like the other movies, but I think this is a perfect example of a standalone film that is just exceptional and leaves the world so open with ambiguity and questions about where it could have gone that even if I don't necessarily love the directions they took it, I like the idea of it presenting that to me. And that I think that that's, you know, pretty special. So that's where I stand with it. I love it. Good, good. Because, I mean, I have no quips with saying that it's probably a perfect movie. I mean, this is right up there with Jurassic Park in terms of a complete holistic storytelling of a movie. This was my first theatrical experience that I ever remember. I may have gone to other ones, but I believe if it's 1985, let me do the math. I think I was six, maybe. And the thing I remember was this is what we did on vacation. We went to movies and we did that at home. But I distinctly remember us going out to eat, having dinner, and then going to like a 730 feature of this movie and then getting a big tub of popcorn, big drinks, coming out of the theater. And Aaron, you know my dad. Uh, Adam, you don't. But if you know my dad, they have become my dad in a lot of ways where the dad jokes just flow like like water out of me. And I distinctly remember there being either a baseball game on, because I think we went to Texas, and I think either the Royals were playing the Rangers or something, but there was a baseball game on or something. I said, I hope, we, I hope we're able to watch some of the baseball game. And he says, I don't know if we'll get back in time, but we'll see. And he, I remember him distinctly just slowing down and saying that, and I, I, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I thought, you're so funny, Dad, whereas like four years later, I'm like, ooh, cringe, but that's pretty good. But I remember, I I can't say that I remember the experience of the movie, but I remember the experience of coming out of the theater having watched it. And like you, Adam, I really cut my teeth on the VHS. I would watch all three over and over. Well, I'd watch the first one over and over again. And if you look at the releases of the second and third, there was a 
a time lapse. I mean, there was, what, three or four years before the second movie released. And then the third one came shortly thereafter. And I do remember To Be Concluded happening at the end of the theatrical release of the second one. I also remember, guys, falling in love in my adolescent teenage years with the second one because of the cool factor. Hey, this is the future. I love it. It wasn't until 2015, and this is probably why you you rewatch this, Aaron, that my brother and I got a chance to go see the 30th anniversary of the three movies. And this is, I think, my sort of rebirth of falling in love with the franchise as a whole. I distinctly remember loving and elevating the first movie above the other two. Maybe it's because of my appreciation for the writing. Maybe it's because I was getting more of the references and it wasn't just looking at this as a really fun time travel movie, but I was seeing it for what it was bringing to the table. And I remember just going, wow, there's so many good things about this movie. I can't pick anything apart. I mean, it is great from the writing to the practical effects to the story beats, to the overall narrative. It's just wonderful. And it doesn't take away from the second and third. But I distinctly saw a subjective drop-off in appreciation. And again, it's hugely up there. The whole trilogy is just way up there. And so even dropping number three down, it's still way above a lot of other movies that deal with time travel or are comedies, things like that. And so I I loved being able to experience all three in the theater. I thought it was pretty fantastic. I loved one of the cool things they did was between the first and second movie, they showed a trailer for Jaws 19. They did an advertisement for Hoverboard. So these were things that were added, I think, to the 30th anniversary box set special features that they threw onto the screen. And it reminded me in a way of the kind of marketing and fun that, that the Grindhouse idea was where you had these two features and you were trying to capture that whole B-movie experience. And I remember thinking, man, what a great way to market your series. Plus, at that moment, it's 2015 and I don't have my hoverboard. But I distinctly remember leaving the theater after watching all three and going, man, this first entry is just really untouchable. And I think if you try to critique it, I will fight you because I don't know that there is a movie that has that kind of staying power like Back to the Future. And and I'm hoping that you guys can help me unpack why that is. When we look at at the movie itself, one of the big questions is, does it hold up? As uh, as we were talking offline, I was listening to Patrick Willems' video essay on the Police Academy movies. And in no uncertain terms, he says, no, it does not. These movies are, are not good. They're, he says they range from fine to bad. But what he talks about is the fact that there, in the 80s, there was a formula for comedy and that that particular series hit on to an extent, but didn't quite get it the way that it did like for Animal House or Meatballs or Stripes. And so it got me thinking, why does Back to the Future hold up? Why is it considered a classic? And, and really, why has it not tried to be rebooted? Which, please don't do that, by the way. That's just <laughs> sacrilegious. For my money... I think it's that it feels fresh as a story that, yes, there are common story beats that exist in other kind of hero quests. But I think that there was just enough in the in the story that was familiar that the use of time travel was pretty risky. But 
Zemeckis and company decided we're going to make this something that feels, as you mentioned, Adam, incredibly accessible to all ages. Was there salty language? Sure. But there wasn't over-the-top violence. There wasn't sex to an extent. With, and, if, and if those things were, were there, they were played for laughs. They were played to an extent where it felt very, very comfortable. This is one of those movies that works almost in any decade. And I, and I think, you know, to use a, a pun, it's timeless, right? And it's not just because it travels through hundreds of years. It's because the things that it's hitting on and the way it hits on those things don't feel dated. So even how we get the DeLorean built, even the way in which time travel exists, it's not Christopher Nolan science, but it doesn't have to be. It's not asking to be. You could poke holes in the time travel story, and and that's fine. It's fun to do that, but you're kind of lost in this element of what if. And I think that's, for me, the biggest thing is Back to the Future is a movie that asks the question, what if? And we're allowed to kind of go on this journey with Marty and, and answer that question. What if this happened? What if I had a chance to, which is a question that we all ask that is asking movies, but I think it's done in such a fun blockbuster type way that I don't know that it's been repeated or at least not effectively. So those are kind of my thoughts. Adam, what about you? Why do you think it's kind of stood the test of time after 35 years? I think it has everything a great movie needs. It's got action, adventure, comedy, incredible visual effects, as you mentioned, practical effects, as well as some optical effects. And it's got an incredible cast, which is a whole nother sort of, in a way, happy accident that it all happened at and worked out the way it did. It's got this incredible full orchestral score by Alan Silvestri, which I think this movie wouldn't be what it is without. It's got that great theme song by Huey Lewis the News, The Power of Love. I mean, if you listen to that, it's another e we were doing our episode on The NeverEnding Story and talking about the, the theme song to that movie. It's just this earworm that gets in your head. This is another one of those where if you, if you hear it, you can start humming it, whistling it. You, it's just you can't get it out of your head. And in preparation for this uh, podcast, I have been hearing that Alan Silvestri score in my, my head and whistling it around my apartment. So it's, it's just so iconic and it plays such an important role, I think, in why this movie works the way it does. But as you mentioned, the script, it all comes down to the script. It really is almost a perfect script if there ever was one. And it's been as many have mentioned in documentaries about the film it's been studied it is studied in film schools as and it's sort of dissected and it's because every literally everything that is introduced or seen or heard earlier in this film it it pays off later in the film and that's what a good script will do but this goes so much farther i think than just the average script because even the smallest of details will pay off later and many of which people didn't notice for years and they would watch it three four or five times and be like oh i just i just noticed something for the first time i've never noticed before and that again that starts in the script but it's also in the execution in the direction in the production design in the set decorations everything all those details everything coming together to create a whole experience that you're eyes and ears can't get enough of. And I, I just think that all of that combined with the fact that this is, for me at least, a life-affirming 
experience. This movie just kind of makes you feel good. The credits roll, and I would argue with anyone not to be in a good mood after seeing it. There's lots of movies that are excellent, but you don't always feel the greatest <laughs> after watching them. Or you can't get them out of your head in kind of a, in a bad way because the visuals, you know, whether you're talking about horror movies or just films that are about very difficult subjects, this is really such pure escapism and it makes you feel good about life and it makes you hum that music. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I mean, everything you guys are saying, it's, it's really just every element of it is perfectly crafted. And I think... Zemeckis just has to have credit for that. I mean, and it's amazing because it goes even beyond just being a normal, perfectly crafted movie. And it's a perfectly crafted movie that experienced one of the most insane and crazy production cycles ever on top of, you know, that a normal movie being perfect. So for it to come out that way, it's almost serendipitous in a, in a sense, you would think like it's kind of meant to be. And it's just, it's, I don't, when I when I call things perfect movies, to me, that means there's no scene that I would take out or I would change. I feel like everything is in its place perfectly and everything has its purpose and everything is done in a way that I think is in service to the whole picture of the movie in a way that is works for its betterment. And I think that's true here. I think the script is absolutely aces the way that both Crispin Glover and Leah Thompson can play his parents at their, you know, teenage age. And then also at their eldest is pretty incredible. I think that the relationship between Marty and doc Brown is just so pure. And, and I think pure is a good word for this too. It's got a sensibility about it, a morality about it without being pushy in the way that, turns people off. And so it, it's a really hard line to walk. And sometimes I don't know that I could ever tell you or, or, you know, do it myself <laughs> and figure out what audiences respond to and what they feel is put off putting. But there is an underlying morality about the way that Marty approaches his time in the past and his friendship with Doc Brown and, and not will being willing to, to risk things to save his life. Um, you know, not going for his mom for a cheap laugh about how we would all want to do that, right? Like it, it plays it very straight, but while completely recognizing and understanding that she is a fox to all of us watching and that it would be just utterly impossible for us to wrap our minds around what that would be like and having to deal with that. It's such a wonderful concept to explore. And it's so endearing. And I, and I think that all of those things combined with just the ease of the time travel, I would say it's simplistic. <laughs> and Patrick, it's funny because I remember very clearly us talking. We, we love time travel movies and we were covering Primer. And it finally hit me that I, whether I've changed or I've gotten to an age, but, but it just, they don't do it for me anymore. I, I don't want to be so challenged that my brain hurts. It's, it's not fun. I, once upon a time, I love to unpack those things. If I don't get it very clearly after maybe a second viewing, to me, that's not enjoyable anymore. And this is enjoyable to anybody. For a first time, you know, for a kid watching, 
you can get it. The car goes this fast and it goes back in time. It's really that simple. You you know, yes, there's plutonium and a, there's cool made up words that go along with it, but it's very, very simple at its base core. And so you can understand it and it's an accident. I think that also plays into its favor is so many of our time travel stories are either characters already are aware that they're time traveling and they're either being forced into it or they're doing it for a purpose because they have a goal and a desire. And that is not the story of Back to the Future. It is a kid who's accidentally there in this situation and now he has to deal with it. And it has no, he has no kind of agency over the fact that, of where he is. And he handles it in a way that is so mature and so realistic and relatable that I think we can all just see ourselves in him in a way that takes us out of other movies a little bit, because that's not how time travel is usually handled. It's usually just handled in such a highbrow way with such a like seriousness to it. And, you know, if, if this doesn't go right, it, it's a very small scale the, of impact theoretically that we're dealing with here. It's one kind of unique little family unit that could be, now obviously there's tons of branches and stuff that go out, but the movie doesn't go into that. It doesn't try to talk about like how the whole world is gonna change and be affected and blow up and go crazy if you do something wrong. It's very confined to this familial story. And, and I think that that makes it like really special to, to people and, and stick with them. I, I would absolutely co-sign that, Aaron. I think that the simplicity of it is the draw for a lot of people. Look, anytime you use time travel, you have to set up rules. You have to. You can't just say, we're going to do this and uh, yeah, and we're going to do that. But there's so much you can do with it. I mean, again, you take Interstellar. Christopher Nolan was really ambitious with saying, look, we're going to use science. We're going to science the heck out of this, right? And we're going to use actual theory. And the fascinating thing about Nolan's approach is that he uses that to help craft an emotional story. And that's why I love Interstellar. I love Back to the Future for a different reason, because it doesn't use science, because of those types of things where Doc Brown says, when this thing hits 88 miles an hour, you're going to see some serious, yeah, whatever. And then, as you mentioned before, Aaron, Marty's not the, he's the conduit. He is not the guy who's like, yes, I'm going to use this for my own personal gain. I'm going to go use this to fix something, or I'm going to go use this to do X. No, his whole story can get wrapped up in one line. Let's see if you bastards can do 90. He's trying to escape the Libyans, okay? And he just happens which is the silliest part of the whole movie, by the way. I know, right? <laughs> but it's so perfect. And I think that you look at Marty, and uh, Adam, you and I were talking about this earlier this week, that my viewing this time really kind of vaulted this idea that I think we're kind of getting an early version of a superhero story. It's not that Marty is getting superpowers, and now with great power comes great responsibility, but greatness is kind of thrust upon him. So he has this thing that happens he's trying to escape and then he ends up just kind of whoops and then everything after that is as you mentioned aaron problem solving here's where i think the movie really shines is it doesn't rush i mean it's roughly what two hours 
And in two hours, we get what I think is really fantastic exposition. You go back in time. I've never done it, but I'm assuming this happens. You're probably going to get a little case of vertigo. You're going to kind of get a little bewildered because you're like, what just happened? Where am I? I was being chased by Libyans and now I'm getting hit by a scarecrow and I'm crashing into a barn. What's happening? And so for those next probably 20, 30 minutes, we get from a technical standpoint, really fantastic editing. We get these moments where he lands in a field on a farm. He comes out, he improvises, he understands what he needs to do over time. But the whole thing really starts with him meandering into a diner where he just so happens to sit next to his dad. And Aaron, you pointed this out when you were talking to me last night. What a great visual moment where Biff says McFly and both of them turn around in sync like, yeah, that's father and son. And I think his whole journey really stands out to me as something where he's trying to fix the past and not screw up the future. And But as a result, he does change the future. And it speaks to the fact that you cannot not change something. But the movie doesn't like sit on those and say, okay, we're going to focus on what effect does him making out with his mom potentially have on what happens to the whole history of Hill Valley. No, it doesn't do that because that's not the story we're being told. And so watching him go through this whole evolution and getting a chance to see that paid off because of decisions that are made and because of how one thing affects another and affects another and affects another. I really think of him as sort of the 1980s version of the superhero origin story before Marvel hit the scene because he didn't want this. It came to him and he adapted. And what I love is that the franchise itself doesn't stop. Like he's always sort of in peril and it's almost like he can't go back to being the alter ego. He can't go back to being Clark Kent or Peter Parker. Nope, he's Spider-Man, all three movies. And it seems like where one movie ends, it sparks a whole slew of other issues. And I think that's a testament to the creativity of Zemeckis and the writing teams. Like, okay, how do we keep this on point and evolve the story, but not repeat what we're doing? And the longer you spend in a time travel franchise, the more questions you're going to ask. And I clearly remember doing this as a young adult. Did it take away from my enjoyment of the movie? Absolutely not. But I think it's a it's a great fun byproduct of the fact that Zemeckis is going, you know what, guys, if we spend too much time in here, we're going to have to explain all this. But I love the through line of Marty's journey. He really doesn't get a chance to breathe. And so when we finally get to that coda of the end of the series, I really feel like we can breathe with him. Like, okay, his story's over. Obviously, the time travel journey is not for Doc and Clara. But we have followed Marty through this. We can ride off into that four by four with him and say, all right, what's next? And he can go back to being Marty. And I think that that to me is part of what creates a really good trilogy is we get finality. We get a sense of saying, all right, if we're going to go a different route, let's do something else. And that's when we get the great Telltale series. That's when we get the great comic books. And that's when we get a cartoon. And that's when we get a video game. Those stories can be told. They're in the universe, but they don't have to be canon with those three movies. And so I think it really starts with Marty. But Aaron, as you mentioned, (laughs) Michael J. Fox, (laughs) Marty was kind of a question mark. (laughs) He was probably the biggest issue. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about that because, Aaron, lately I know that you've been going through and really appreciating when you get a 4K version of of a movie. 
one of the first things you want to do after watching it is checking out the special features, listening to a director's commentary. And I think we'd all agree that when you listen to a commentary or watch things, it really does elevate your appreciation of a movie. I mean, you're already buying it. So by default, you're, you're loving it. So it's not like you're going, I hated this movie, but maybe if I listen to the commentary, it'll make it better. Back to the Future, as you mentioned, there was no exception. And Adam, I want to kind of turn this over to you because I knew about Eric Stoltz being originally cast as Marty McFly. I think that's probably pretty well known. And then ultimately, they wanted Michael J. Fox. They got Michael J. Fox. But Adam, one of the ways that we've connected with you is uh, we've gotten a chance to interview Matthew Modine from the Full Metal Jacket Diary that you helped produce. It kind of helped connect us to you and to him. You mentioned something to me earlier, how he's connected to the Back to the Future world. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I work with Matthew and on a few occasions, he has talked about Back to the Future and how he could have been Marty McFly for about 24 hours. <laughs> so uh, from what I understand, shortly after Eric Stoltz was fired or let go, they had filmed about six weeks worth of uh, the movie, which is unheard of. I mean, that's two thirds of the movie, I believe, something like that. They really got deep into production with him in the lead role. And unfortunately, as great as an actor as he is, and he had just come off of doing Mask, which was a critically acclaimed performance for, for Eric. And he was um, unfortunately kind of delivering a much more serious take on the role. The comedy wasn't coming through the way both Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, the Bobs, uh, wanted it to. And uh, it came to a point where they had to make a decision. Either we keep going and this isn't going to be the movie we want it to be, or do we try to right the ship by bringing in a new lead? And at this point, they made the decision to halt production and let Eric go. But they had no definitive answer on whether or not they were going to be able to get their first choice, Michael J. Fox, because he was committed to family ties at the time. And he was actually the first choice before Eric Stoltz, but they weren't able to get him because of his commitments. So there was a short window in there where I think the studio was scrambling and the producers and filmmakers to find anybody that was sort of a hot up and coming talent that was the right age, kind of had the right look. And uh, according to Matthew Modine, he got an offer to play Marty McFly, but he had to read the script and essentially give an answer within like 24 hours, maybe two days. And uh, as big as this was as an opportunity, I mean, everybody knew this was a big film. Steven Spielberg was executive producing. It was a big deal. He actually was friends with Eric Stoltz. So he ultimately just said no out of his friendship, out of his loyalty to his friend. He didn't feel he could take a part that a good friend of his had just been fired from. And I'm sure that was crushing for Eric. I think that any actor being let go, not getting a part is hard enough, right? But if you've been given the part and you start filming and you've filmed for almost six weeks, that's got to be devastating. So I, I think I totally understand why anybody, if your friend had a part like this and they called you up and said, hey, do you want it? I think a lot of people would have probably done the same thing that Matthew did. And I think he agrees that he wasn't the right fit either, that ultimately the best fit was somebody with more comedic acting chops like Michael J. Fox. And I'm not exactly sure of the time frame, but shortly thereafter, this offer was made and he 
turned it down. Michael J. Fox was approached again, and essentially they made a deal with the producers of Family Ties that he could film Back to the Future at night only, as long as it didn't interfere with his commitments to Family Ties during the day. So he was filming Family Ties until like seven o'clock at night. They would rush him to the Back to the Future set where he might get something to eat and maybe a, a short nap. And then he would film until three or four in the morning. He would be dragged home and sleep in the car and sleep until like seven, get up and go work on Family Ties. I mean, it, I mean, you're talking maybe about two months of this. So it's not like it was years of his life, but I'm sure that was a very grueling experience where he was barely, uh, sort of aware of where he was half the time. But again, things happen for a reason. If that cut with Eric came out, it probably wouldn't have been the movie that we all have come to love and and appreciate. But as Bob Gale has mentioned openly in some interviews, the and I think you guys interviewed him too, that footage exists still. That cut of the film, he believes, will one day get released. And I think just as sort of a, as a curiosity, I would love to see sort of a fully reassembled, re restored version of the movie with all his scenes inserted with the existing footage, because that's the only way they could get this accomplished was they couldn't reshoot everything. They just reshot Eric Stoltz's coverage with Michael J. Fox. So many of the scenes, many of the shots where he was talking to Leah Thompson or, or Crispin Glover, they kept that footage in place and didn't reshoot it. It was only when they had wide shots or two shots where they were, they had to reshoot that footage. So this was such a, an incredibly daunting task for the editing team to be able to essentially piece together footage from two different versions of the movie and make it so flawless and seamless as if you're watching one production is really an achievement in its own right. So the story behind the story of the making of this movie is almost as interesting and amazing as the film is itself. And in addition to those behind the scenes documentaries and commentaries and so on, there's also a really interesting film about this called Back in Time. It's a documentary that covers the making of the movie. It's a lot more about, there's about a half hour of sort of the making of the film. A lot more of it is dedicated to sort of the fandom, which is not as interesting to me, but still an interesting viewing if you are a fan like us of this movie. And there's also a Netflix series called The Movies That Made Us. And in season two, they covered Back to the Future, the first film. And that's a, it's also an enjoyable trip down memory lane to kind of hear some of this behind the scenes drama told from the perspective of the, the people that worked on the production. So it's a crazy behind the scenes story. And like I said, if you're interested in learning more, there's tons of stuff out there. There's even a few poor quality video shots or um, footage available on YouTube of Eric Stoltz in some of these scenes that somehow got leaked out. It's it's not very good, but you can see the same camera setups like when uh, you were saying at the diner when Crispin Glover is, is eating his breakfast and you see Marty kind of lean in to the side and look and like in shock looking at his father for the first time. There's footage online of both Eric Stoltz doing that and obviously Michael J. Fox from the film that we all know. So it's just sort of an interesting thing. I'm a, I'm a fan in general of alternate cuts, and I'm always interested in sort of how 
films make it to the version that we all know and love. Like there's always so many things that happen behind the scenes. And uh, I love seeing deleted scenes. There's actually also deleted scenes that you can see from this film. But like Aaron said, they don't need to be in it. They're fun to watch just to see them but they don't really add anything. So the version that we got really is the ultimate version. It's the right version. And it it just, everything that needs to be there is there. And there's nothing extra that, there's nothing missing. I've been stuck ever since you said Matthew Modine was almost (laughs) Marty McFly. Because all I can think about is like, there's no way. His career trajectory is completely different. Even if he killed it, it's completely different because he's mm-hmm. there's yep. no way he plays Joker. It's impossible. Like, yeah, that would I just not don't see that either. happening. And talk about time, the concept of time and choices. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a great example of if he would have taken that role, he would never have worked with Stanley Kubrick. And then his career would never have gone down the path that it did. So it's just so fascinating. The idea of this is the multiverse, you know, the, what would have <laughs> what could have been. <laughs> And uh, I don't know if you ever saw the show um, Fringe. It was a show oh, on yeah. Fox, sci-fi oh, show. Oh, yeah. We, where they we go watched into the, it together. The yeah. alternate, that alternate world. It, there's even a shot in the opening of one of the episodes where they pan over a movie theater marquee, and it says, Back to the Future, starring Eric Stoltz. Oh. So little, <laughs> it's great. Uh, and I, again, most people probably never would have caught that, but it's just a great little uh, Easter egg for anybody that knew about that story of his. I think you're right, Adam, that the right people are in the movie and there's nothing discrediting those that were not in it. Anytime you go for an audition, it's just like going for an interview. The studio or the company has an idea of who they want in that role. And obviously, sometimes people will say, I need a Michael J. Fox. And you'll say, well, get us Michael J. Fox. I need a Betty White. Uh, I think for the Mary Tyler Moore show, I I remember reading about they were trying to cast and they were like, we need somebody that's kind of like a, like a Betty White. And they're like, well, why don't we just get Betty White? And, and I think that not knowing anything beyond what we know from the special features and online and what the internet tells us, we know what we know. But I think what we've realized is that there was something about Michael J. Fox and his presence, the way he delivered lines on Family Ties that vaulted him to be in that. I will say, yes. If you have an idea for your centerpiece, for the guy that's going to sort of carry the movie or at least move you along the story, it's really important to get who you want to get instead of just settling. And as you mentioned, Eric Stoltz was not someone that they settled for. I think it was someone who had what they needed, but if they could possibly get who they really wanted, who could fit the bill, they eventually did. And so what we got was a wonderful movie and a a wonderful series at that. But I don't think it stopped with Michael J. Fox. And I think the anchor here for me is his relationship with Doc. Part of what sparked a more pressing desire for for me personally to want to cover the series was something you tweeted about maybe three or four months ago. I think you had taken a picture of uh, Marty's letter to Doc and just how poignant it was, how complete it was. And it made me think, you know, this is his relationship is a lot like in the arc that they have is kind of a similar kind of companionship that Daniel and Mr. Miyagi have. And we talked about that on the Karate Kid episode. And and I hadn't really made that connection until my 2015 watch that they are the through line. Their relationship, Doc cannot do what he does without Marty. And Marty cannot do what he does without Doc. And you've got this fantastic ensemble cast 
I think Biff is fantastic. I think Crispin Glover just nails it as his dad. I think all of these these great cast members that come together. You you have to mention the guy that I specifically was texting you about last night. If we're going to talk about supporting characters, <laughs> I mean, can we mention Skinhead? <laughs> No, I Billy mean, Zane, like, right? I, is no. it Billy Zane? <laughs> <laughs> I, I am a huge James Tolkien fan, and that yeah. is, I uh. just adore the fact that Principal Strickland is essentially the same character <laughs> as Stinger in Top Gun. It's like this was yeah, this is yeah. not his audition for Top Gun. <laughs> it's his alternate version where he went back in the past and he became a flight you know, a, a yeah. jet fighter pilot instead of a principal, but he's the exact same character. And I just love the fact that like, there's that one moment where he's telling Marty that like, I, when he's like, you got a real attitude problem, McFly. And it looks and sounds exactly like him, you know, going off on Maverick at the very beginning of Top Gun. And it's just, it's such a perfect thing. And I was, so I, I got in this little like show hole <laughs> of research last night with when I was watching the movie again and looking up like Tolkien's history, come to find out he was in the Navy, had no idea that he did a year in the Navy. And he said that he actually never would have been an actor because he was into music and then ended up in the Navy and he would have stayed in the Navy. He was actually a boxer at the time. And he was doing a whole bunch of like, you know, the Navy was known for these boxing fights that would take place below decks. And so he was, he had gained a lot of respect from them. But then randomly he had some heart condition that popped up and they separated him from the Navy for medical reasons. And that's what ended up leading to him going to acting school. And then he shows up in Top Gun eventually. And of course, I'm just making the reference because now I'm watching him <laughs> in Back to the Future as well. But like, I just think that that is, it's so funny how we learn these stories about people. Like you never would have yeah. known that. Um, but I just, I think he's actually just, he's so exceptional in his like He kind of plays the same character also he also kind of plays the same character in masters of the universe <laughs> with Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> that is wild. Not, not <laughs> quite as good a movie, but. And he probably still doesn't have hair. I don't think he ever had Yeah. Hair. He's bald. He's a cop. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think Aaron, what you're, what you're saying is something that I want to really make sure we call attention to is the fact that comedy is on a multitude of, of levels here in terms of how lines are delivered. I, I thought Thomas Wilson was fantastic as Biff in the entire series. I love the fact that we find out that his mess ups of make like a tree and get out of here. Those were ad lib. Like he thought it would be even funnier. So having that kind he of, he was a comedian, which I never realized he, he's, before this, he was a stand up comic. Like who would have thought he's yeah. just this big bulky guy. And yeah. It's just <laughs> such a, it's, it's, it's just so fun to watch him. I remember seeing him in the one and only season of Freaks and Geeks as a as a mm-hmm. gym teacher, and it's like, oh, yes. look, and he's still got that comedic timing, but he's just different, right? He's an adult, yep. and I'm like, you're in, you're back in high school, you're teaching gym, of course you are, Biff. And of course, I want to make those connections, just like I'm thinking James Tolkien, yeah, he he was a principal in high school, and then he joined the Navy, and then he you know was harassing Maverick. That's what happened. I mean, this is it's all connected. <laughs> The Top Gun universe, exactly. the Back to the Future universe is all connected. But at its core, you've got Marty and Doc. And the more I watch this series, the more that I just fall in love with their relationship. Because you watch these two, and I don't think it's ever explained, at least not in the main three movies, how they became friends. I mean, these are two people that couldn't be more different but couldn't really be more alike in the same way. I mean, they're both outcasts. They're both trying to make their mark on 
history in some way. Marty's trying to be an aspiring musician, and apparently he's just too darn loud, even for Huey Lewis. But then Doc here is trying to make the next great discovery. He's not doing it for a company. He's not doing it for wealth. He's doing it because there's passion. And you see both of these guys who I think are struggling to just put their fingerprint on the world and make a significant impact, whether it's through music or whether it's through science. But it's such an odd relationship in terms of who they are independently, but they're the odd couple, essentially. They work together so complementary in terms of how they need each other, how they need to rely on one another. I don't ever see Doc Brown being able to handle the DeLorean like Marty does. And I definitely don't see Marty being able to work science experiments and think of the world all scientifically by how did you describe the enchantment under the sea dance? He described it as a... Oh, in- yeah, a rhythmic ceremony, uh, rhythmic ceremonial, ceremonial ritual. ritual. Everything about... <laughs> Every line he delivers is sort of like this very technical way of describing a much simpler thing. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And it got me thinking about from this installment, what, if anything, changed about their relationship. So if, if we try to kind of put backstory to their relationship in 1985, they never knew each other back in the 50s, obviously. What do you guys think changed about their relationship or enhanced their relationship that happened in 1955? How did it affect their kind of revised relationship in in 1985? I think that in the present 1985, they are friends for some reason, as you said. I think the comic book series may have explored that Bob Gale helped co-write and develop, may have explored a little bit kind of non-canon why and how they first met each other and and, uh, became friends. But I think they both were sort of filling holes in the other's lives, right? So that's really where the friendship began. Doc sort of becomes this avuncular figure for Marty. He's kind of this person that teaches him things, helps him learn about science. And maybe because Doc never had children, because he spent 30 years of his life trying to realize this vision for his time machine and spend all his entire family fortune doing it, he never had time for family, sort of no pun intended. He never, and that actually gets resolved in the third film, which is kind of a nice uh, way this all kind of comes around. So Marty kind of serves as a a son in a way for Doc. He kind of, yes, they're friends, they're companions, but there's also a little bit of something that goes beyond that. So in the kind of current 1985 version that the film starts in, that's sort of all it is. But once Marty goes back in time and Doc meets him and understands, wow, my invention works and you're from the future and we're friends in the future, all of a sudden Marty now is so much more to Doc. Marty is this key to his own success, to his own ability to actually invent something that works, as he says. He he now knows that Marty essentially is the evidence that that he is he will become a successful inventor one day and do something essentially groundbreaking up there with uh, with with Einstein and Edison, you know, that he will do something that really will change the world. And so now he has such a different connection to Marty. And so in the new tangent timeline that they create, where Marty goes back to the future and Doc is aware of him, he's looking at him with different eyes than he did in the original timeline, right? Because it's so much more, it basically means that however they met, that Doc had to pretend like he never met Marty in 1955, that this was all 
just happening organically. And he had to somehow not change anything else in their relationship, even though he wouldn't really be aware of it. So it's it's a little tricky to kind of wrap your head around. But it it definitely feels like their relationship has deepened. They're more intertwined, right, than they ever were before. They, As you said earlier, they need each other. And that friendship, as you mentioned as well, carries through in all three films. It works perfectly as a self-contained film, but it also works perfectly as a three-part film. And I think we've talked about this as well in the past, that you can sort of watch the first movie by itself. But if you start watching the second one, you kind of have to watch the third one. You kind of have to see the whole trilogy. So it either you can't just watch part two. You can't really just watch part three. You either watch part one and that's it. That's your evening's movie. Or you watch all three movies, maybe not all on the same night, but in order. And you experience the whole story, the arc of these characters, which is another interesting thing just to bring up quickly is that even though the script is near perfect, it does break some script writing rules in that Marty doesn't really change. It's everyone else around him that changes in this story. He kind of, as you said, has everything kind of happening to him. He's just trying to figure out how to fix what he broke. He essentially broke the past by running into his father and then being hit by essentially his grandfather's car. And then he has to undo that damage. And as you also said, he didn't mean to go back in time. He didn't try to stop the Libyan terrorists. He just got in the car, tried to get away from them, and it all happened by accident. So he kind of comes back and everyone else is different except for him. He's the one thing that sort of never changes. He just gets to go back to being the Marty that he was before. So it's an interesting dilemma in terms of why this works so well, because it doesn't follow the tradition, at least in the very first film. Again, more happens for these characters. Their arcs do go a lot farther, and they do change much more throughout the course of the entire trilogy. But just looking at this film as a standalone film, it's an interesting sort of conundrum in terms of why it's so successful and why why it works so well. I think what Adam started to get at about Doc and the potential convoluted nature of time travel that doesn't get addressed is what I love about it. And that is, it's simple. We knew these guys had a relationship. We know that Marty cares deeply enough about Doc that he wants to save his life. It's as important to him as getting back. It's as important to him as anything else staying the same, is he wants to save his life from this tragedy that he's going to experience. And we get a beautiful moment of trust from Doc Brown showing that he has that in Marty and that he knows that if he was going to take the time to write this letter, that I need to take the time to read it and acknowledge that he is going to say something that is important enough for me to take in. And so they both make, essentially, they are both willing to risk the future because of their friendship. And I think it is just expressed to us so simply and in such a understandable way that you can relate to that if the movie had even slightly started to hint at the fact that the reality is that Doc would have had to live his entire life and try to make it perfect to bring it up with Marty again. That's one of eight billion different things you could come up with that there's no way in heck that this story ends up the same way. Like all of these people just still end up somehow just slightly altered relationships, but they're all still in the same place. That's the beauty of this movie, is I don't want to think about that stuff. Zemeckis perfectly lets that relationship show us the idea of the butterfly effect, but not to the extent that that's the point of the movie. 
that's the difference in Back to the Future. Is it's the device. It's not the point. And the relationships are the point. And that is obviously exemplified by Marty and Doc. And it's just such a cool friendship and such a weird friendship. I personally don't want to know anymore. I don't need to know why Marty and Doc were friends. And this is weird because I do usually like backstory and I like additional information. But for me, I truly just like it living in my head. You know, Strickland mentions something about him being that old eccentric crazy guy, right? And, you know, I try to think about other stories we've watched and we've read and where there's this weird person in the town or neighborhood. And so, of course, kids would be intrigued by that and want to find out what that person is all about. I, I like not having specifics and just taking it for face value that these guys are buddies, that they have something in common. Obviously, Marty plays music over there because Doc specifically leaves him a note saying, don't use the amp. So there's something about him that allows Marty to be Marty in a way that Marty can't be elsewhere. And I think it's almost like a, a grandfatherly figure to him in a way. Not, I mean, we don't know if Marty has a, a grandfather that he's close to or not. He doesn't in Back to the Future, at least. And so I, I just love the way it's portrayed so simply without the details. Like it's just enough to completely get you by the heartstrings and make you appreciate their friendship without breaking that connection that you have with it with questions and details. And it doesn't make your it doesn't make your brain go into all of these different directions that takes you out of the emotion. Both of you are touching on something that I think is really special, and that's the simplicity of the story, the simplicity of the characters, but they're not simple characters. So we talk about flat characters versus round characters, and, and all of us can agree that every one of these characters has meaning, has purpose, even even you know, Goldie Wilson, you know, it's so good. Uh, Marvin Berry, you know, calling his... his, his <laughs> he's got his cousin Chuck, right? I told Patrick. I told Patrick <laughs> last night, I was like, I've watched this movie dozens of times, right? And I have never yeah. once put together that Marvin calls Chuck, Chuck and says, yeah. right. And says, Chuck Berry. Yeah. Hey, I got this sound that you're looking for. <laughs> and that it was, it was Chuck Berry and he's playing a Chuck Berry's like hit. So I never had put right. that together. And my oh, mind wow. was blown. Really? I started texting Patrick and I was like, Oh my gosh, did you realize like, and I'm sure like he noticed on the first time you watched it or something, but yeah, no, I, I, I yeah, like, I didn't know who Chuck Berry was at seven yeah, years old, right? but as I watched it later in the nineties, I, I, I understood and you know finally caught on but that's why this works right because you do yes. pick those things up with subsequent views and it's not banged over all... the head no it's not no. like hey yeah. look at this scene this is what we're getting at wink 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 right yeah exactly it works because the reason why it doesn't matter about all that weird backstory also is that on a first viewing you don't even think about it it's only with the 10th, 11th, 12th viewing, you're kind of like, well, wait a minute. How did they meet? Like, where, why are they hanging out together? It doesn't matter at that point. It worked. It worked because the first time you saw it, you didn't even bat an eyelash. You didn't even think about it. You just, as you, as you said, it just, it is what it is. This is the relationship they had. They're friends. Okay, moving on. You know, yeah. It's so simple. Right. The writers trust the audience to just pick up on it and not have to yeah. ask complicated questions because Back to the Future is not a complicated story. And I think it's a testament to this movie and the series that it doesn't have to be complicated, that stories can be simple 
and be very impactful. And as I'm watching these more, a great way to sum up Marty's role in this is let's see if you bastards can do 90, you know, accident. You know, he didn't intend in the same way. You've got this really fantastic moment at the end and Sylvester's score just accents it really nicely. Marty of the past to the future, you know, I guess new Marty, Marty B, if we're going to call him anything. He sees his former self going back in time in the DeLorean and then he runs. You know, he's so upset because Doc was shot. And this is something I didn't pick up until probably several viewings later that when Marty leaves the first time, Doc's dead. Like Doc has been shot. He is dead. In this timeline, he actually died. And so you think about that going into his beginning of his journey. And he's like, wow, he didn't even have time to grieve. And he's not thinking about, oh, I can save Doc. He's thinking about other things. And so this is this journey that I think you don't realize until you watch this maybe as an adult or you have kind of a lot of other stories under your belt to kind of experience this. But getting back to my point, at the very end of this scene, He's teared up and in, in typical like Christopher Wood comedy way, he kind of rises up and he's like, whoa, what just happened here? Like he just kind of fell down, shows him the bulletproof vest, shows him the letter. And this exchange right here, I think, is just a testament to the writing. Marty goes, what about all that talk about screwing up future events, space time continuum, you know, science stuff? And what does Doc do? He goes, well, I figured, what the hell? They're almost like switching roles. You know, Doc's the scientist and he's like, purity of science. Do not screw up future events. Don't come in contact with your future self. You know, something inconspicuous, you know, but from Back to the Future too. And you've got Marty who's like, yeah, trying to embrace that. And in this moment, Doc has become human. We don't see Doc completely abandoning science and saying, oh, science is rubbish. Let's just move on. Because obviously like two scenes later, he's like, We've got to go back to the future. Something's got to be done about your kids, you know, and all this craziness. You don't lose any of that great character quality of Doc Brown, that eccentric. But in that quiet moment, I think what we see is Doc and Marty really sort of deepening their friendship. Because in that moment, as you guys mentioned, the cat's out of the bag. Doc doesn't have to carry that secret around that he's been carrying for 30 years, right? The pacing of the movie allows us to sit in that moment for a few minutes and then gradually just kind of get back to Marty, who has fallen asleep in his clothes on his bed. And it's now the next day. And of course, now we see all the changes that have actually taken place. And so we get that kind of payoff. So it's a beautiful thing. And, and I love their relationship. I think it's, it's one of the uh, classic <laughs> duos that I think just rank high for me. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the technical stuff because, you know, on our show, we talk about the emotion and we don't stray away from the technical things, but we really don't highlight that. You know, we don't talk about the writing and the script because that feels a little cold. But in this case, or in any good, all that stuff culminates to make a wonderful movie experience. And I'm giving kudos to Adam because he brought this up in our conversation earlier this week. I want to talk about that opening establishing shot of yeah. Doc's lab or whatever it is. And I'll let you kind of expand on it more. But the thing that I love from a technical standpoint is that until Marty starts turning on the equipment, it's a singular shot that just moves through this messy lab that has like five days worth of dog food sitting in a bowl. And you're, what you're getting from that just initially is like, man, this is a mess. What's, what's going on here? And it's, it's a lot of questions. And you hear clocks ticking and you're like, okay, what's happening here? 
I think without saying anything in two minutes and 40 seconds before Marty says like, Hey doc, that's a lot of time to really not say anything and show things. I think that's a classic filmmaking technique that maybe gets lost. Yeah, I was recently reading about the lost art of title sequences. I've been going through the James Bond movies and how Mm -hmm. those title sequences are amazing because they say something about the movie. They sort of hint at the tone. They hint at maybe what's going on. I know that several of the Bond movies sort of give you clips from the film. But Adam, I know that that was something that, that really struck you on this viewing. What kind of thoughts did you have on that? Yeah, I just I think it might be one of the best opening shots in cinema history because it gives you so much information and you may not realize how much you're getting on a first viewing, right? Because you don't know the significance of everything you're hearing and seeing, or you might miss these little details. But I kind of went through it this time really slowly, and I would encourage anybody to do this because so much is going on in this opening shot. There's a newspaper clipping on his wall that says Brown Mansion Destroyed from the Hill Valley Telegraph. And then it says in really small print, Brown Estate Sold to Developers. Bankrupt Inventor Sells Off 435 Prime Acres. So Doc Brown basically had that beautiful mansion, really, uh, in 1955, which was obviously family money that he probably inherited. But he sold it off. And of course, in the current 1985 There's a Burger King next to his garage. So the whole area around his garage was just sold and developed and turned into like a strip mall, essentially. And that's how he had the money to build a time machine because he needed, I'm sure, millions of dollars (laughs) to uh, spend 30 years of his life doing this. But there's other just really interesting things. And that Burger King, of course, there are, if you look closely, there are Burger King wrappers and Whopper wrappers and Burger King cups all over his. So he clearly eats at Burger King a lot. There's pictures of Thomas Edison and Ben Franklin and Albert Einstein around his bed. If you look on his bed, there's the JVC video camera that he tells Marty, can you go back to the lab? I forgot my video camera when he calls him up and wakes him up from sleeping. So that's sitting there on his bed. So that's like perfectly placed that he's not home and he forgot his video camera. There's also a really subtle thing that you can see on a picture. There's a picture of Harold Lloyd, uh, no relationship to Christopher Lloyd. But it's uh, Harold Lloyd dangling from the clock from the 1923 silent film Safety Last. And this obviously foreshadows when Christopher Lloyd is hanging from the clock tower at the end of the movie. So there's just so many little things. And then you hear on the radio a woman say, it's October 1985. Toyota is having a, a sale. So now you know what year it is. Like they just found a way to work so much stuff in. You have the as you said, the dog food, so you know that he has a dog named Einstein. So, so many little things are revealed to you in such a creative opening shot. And at the same time, we're getting the credits, right? So it's serving double duty. You're getting all these facts and and all these details that will pay off uh, under the bed. You have the plutonium case, which I'm sure most people uh, would definitely have noticed that. There's only one cut, and I always thought it was one shot until Marty enters the room, but there's one cut that I, for the first time, noticed here because it's so seamless. It cuts to the dog food hitting the dog bowl for like a second, and then it cuts back to the to the wider shot of it kind of panning over to Marty's foot coming in. So that's the brilliance of good editing, though, is you don't see the cuts. You don't even notice they're there. So... It's just an incredible sequence. And it also raises some minor questions such as 
why does Doc have a giant amplifier in his right? garage? Mean, <laughs> <laughs> what is Doc doing with that? <laughs> I mean, maybe he likes music. Right? Yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but like, it's the big. I don't even know where or when one would have an amplifier of that size, or why <laughs> one would need. Obviously, Marty thinks it's cool because he's a musician. But yeah, maybe Doc bought it for Marty. Who knows? <laughs> But anyway, that's that's my summation of uh, that opening shot. Like I said, I just and there's even more little things in there just for fun. If you're a fan of this movie, I recommend just kind of scouring that shot and going through and even pausing it and just kind of looking at everything that's placed in the frame. It's just a really brilliant establishing shot. Yeah. And I think, Adam, what we get is the first time we see Marty's face is after the explosion. And he even has, right. you know, his glasses on and he's covered. Yeah, his, and he's like, yep. And he's like, whoa. And then, you know, and then the piece of the amplifier falls rock and roll. I think that opening sequence is, if I were teaching filmmaking, I would say this is a great shot to analyze in terms of beats, in terms of mm-hmm. how to move through a scene, how to establish pace, tone. I mean, there's no music. It's just the clock's ticking. We don't know if it's going to be a comedy, but we find out the coda of that scene. It's got some comedic roots to it because he gets blown away by this amp. And we don't ask the question, why does Duck have the amp? We're just laughing at the fact that I would kind of like to own that amp. And I'm asking myself, yeah. why are you turning these up? Like, are you going to play a song or are you just going right. to go and just kind of blow it out? But I think that opening sequence it it makes me feel like Back to the Future is like a scavenger hunt of fun. And so there's so many things in, in that opening sequence, I think, kind of lays the groundwork for watch this again. Watch it multiple times. Watch it because it's a fun movie, but also watch because we're going to put these little things in here that are going to be carefully placed for your benefit. And again, it goes back to that whole superhero type thing. The MCU, it's all about their Easter egg. And I think Back to the Future should probably get some kudos because this is the first franchise I remember that started doing that, where you have so much in the film that pushes the story along, but it also adds a great little kind of visual scavenger hunt or audio scavenger hunt where you're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I didn't realize that. I don't think it's on purpose, though. I mean, I don't think it's on purpose in the way that we have become accustomed to it being in movies. I think it's just good and thorough screenwriting okay. and direction. Like I think that that's what makes it special and talented. And I could be wrong. I haven't listened to an interview with Zemeckis about this or whatever, but I don't get the impression that things are placed there to make us go all cute. That they're placed there because they took the time to thoroughly think out their world and to put it on screen. Whereas nowadays, what we see is an intentionality of throwing a reference in with the sole purpose of trying to trigger something and a thought in some way to get a piece of enjoyment for a person and a piece of entertainment that's not necessarily directly related to that story. But I think everything in Back to the Future is imperative and part of the world building you know what i mean like it is inclusive within itself and so i think of it more as just thoroughly thinking through these things instead of being very arbitrary about okay so we're going back in time and that's the next story beat 
but without thinking about the consequences of that or without thinking about what it would look like to be now at this place exactly. I just, I, th- I feel like it's just, that's an example of what makes it so perfect is yeah. that they took that time to be so specific about it. And the result of it is that naturally it creates this ability for us to do that. But I don't get the sense that that was ever the intent. And I feel very strongly that films nowadays that try to make that happen it's obvious and it often kind of doesn't have the powerful result that they want because we know that they're forcing it. Does that make sense? Yes. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm right in line with you. And I, I never think that they're throwing it in there arbitrarily. You're exactly right. Every set piece, every artifact, if you will, matters. It's like a stand-up comedian. Somebody will make a joke at the beginning of their stand-up routine and then they'll refer back to it. So Jim Gaffigan's fantastic with this. He'll create that the heckler voice. He'll go, this guy's talking about meat too much. And he'll come back to that as a way to kind of breathe and bring their audience back to, oh, yeah, I made that joke you know, 10 minutes ago. That's good writing. And I think that's a testament to how great the screenplay is, because we talked about this on the show before. Intertextuality, the idea of calling back to something that's familiar to give you that endorphin rush or whatever that scientific brain release of like, oh, that feels good to see that. I would say, I don't think that Zemeckis and company are intentionally throwing these in there so that you can find them later. I think it's the magic of how well they crafted this movie that when you watch it for the fifth, sixth, 10th, 12th time, you're actually discovering something else. I never would have looked at that establishing shot at the beginning, the way that you see it, Adam, unless you had mentioned Mm -hmm. it to I mean, it's a great shot. I fully recognize the clocks. And over time, I I recognize the, oh, yeah, plutonium. But I never noticed those little other things. You're introducing the audience to who Doc Brown is also by way of his of his domicile, right, of of how he lives, that he's slobbish, that he's got all these sort of trinkets and gadgets and inventions that like, why do you need an invention to turn on your television in the morning? I mean, he has a little switch and a timer that flips a switch that makes his television go on. Like, why would you need that? But it tells you, oh, we're dealing with a kind of crazy, kooky inventor guy here. So for somebody completely new to the franchise, it's just giving you so much. And we're also getting the credits out of the way at the same time. This is before they moved the opening credits to the end of the movies. So it was, uh, which I'm not a fan of. I like knowing who's involved in a film before I see it. If I haven't read anything about it, I love to see, oh, I know that cinematographer. Oh, I know that composer who's doing the music. I kind of want to go into the movie knowing some of the key people involved in the creation of what I'm about to see. I don't want to watch it afterwards and be like, oh, that's who did the music. Oh, that's who, you know. So I, anyway, I I know that it's for the modern audience, I'm assuming, that just wants to get right into the action. But I, like you said, I, I really love those James Bond opening title sequences. I, I, I miss the art of the title sequence. And I think they kind of hit a peak in the 80s, I would say, and then it started to change in the 90s. Well, we've talked a lot about the movie itself. I think we've hit on several things. I wanted to touch on some of the themes that exist in here, and I just wanted to kind of point out some of my favorites. The obvious one is the motivation or the inspiration for this film. Bob Gale's gone on record of saying that he had been flipping through his dad's yearbook and had thought, you know, what would what would have been like if I was friends with him? And 
as we mentioned before, Back to the Future is that what if. It's like, what if this happened? What if I do this? And it's interesting, guys. I watched this as a kid. And I, I think it's hilarious to watch Marty go back and be awkward with his dad and be awkward with his mom. And watching it now or watching it after college, having a different relationship with my parents, there are some parts where I have a completely different reaction to. Like what's hilarious to me as a teenager about Marty's mom hitting on him just feels weird now. I'm like, I can see how that's just really awkward. And I often think about as my relationship with my dad continues to grow, would we have been friends? And I think we would have. It wasn't until I got to college and was working at the company that he worked for during the summer, driving to work with him, getting our classic rock station on in the morning. I jokingly say, I think I was born in the wrong era because when it comes to music, I absolutely love the music of the 60s and 70s. I love the, the storytelling the tiny dancer kind of things and that some of the anthems. Yeah, I like my 80s. You know, there's nothing's gonna take that away. But I think that some of that was inspired by the fact that my dad and I would always talk. We had a common bond in music. You know, he played guitar. I started playing when I was a junior in high school. I would play alongside him uh, when he would lead worship occasionally. And I think that's what connected us. And it got me thinking, I think I could be his friend. I think he and I would would be buddies. Uh, we both went to the same high school. We both graduated from the, from the same high school. We weren't involved in the same stuff. But I think it's really interesting, not because of hereditary reasons, but of social reasons, how if you have this relationship with your dad at one age, how that can affect you in thinking about growing up with him. And so I think that plays itself out really well with Marty and his dad. I never think that he feels sorry for him, but I see how Marty starts befriending his dad and how he really does understand what is it about George that makes him feel like an outcast? Because we see early on the way he dresses, the way George dresses. I mean, he's very reserved. He He's hunched over. He puts way too much product in his hair to the point where his son says, whoo, time to change that oil. And you get that great <laughs> ah, 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 laugh, which is just classic. But it makes me wonder one, would there have been deficiencies with my dad, <laughs> independent of trying to fix something for the future? Would I have gravitated towards that kind of relationship? And I don't know if I would, but I think I would have been more in sync with him in terms of those kinds of idiosyncrasies. You know, as I'm I'm getting to know him more as an adult, we are different. So, you know, watching Back to the Future, it does make me think about would I have that kind of relationship with my mom? And I, and I love that theme. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that I think Everything that you said is what we all start to think about. We all start to ask these questions of ourselves watching this movie. And I think it's because everybody watching this movie has parents, right? They may have a good relationship. They may have a bad relationship. But we all have parents and we all have a relationship of some kind with one or two parents. And so that makes it sort of universally relatable. So I'm the same way. I, I think as I get to know my dad, as as he gets older and as I get older, I see more and more of who I am in him and him in me. I feel like we're almost the same person. And I think as well that we could have been friends if I went back in time and met him as a young man. I think the big difference is the generational difference. They were born into a much different time. The baby boomer generation, World War II, it was a harder time. So that's the main difference is that they had a different world 
to grow up in than we did in the 80s. So, but who are we outside of that, outside of the time frame that we grew up in? Could we be friends? I think we would. And I think that Marty, he's not feeling sorry for his father, but he just doesn't know his father. I think that's the key is he doesn't really know who he is or who he was. And that, that comes out in that scene in the lunchroom when he sees him writing science fiction stories and he goes, what? Get out of town. I didn't know you ever did anything creative. And I think that's a great moment because it really shows he didn't know who his father was. He didn't understand that he had his own aspirations, that he wasn't just somebody trying to do a job, you know, in the current 1985 that he grew up in. His father worked for Biff and he was just sort of doing the nine to five, right? And he didn't have anything, he didn't know anything more about him. So getting a chance to learn who he was, I think, is what made him understand and respect his father in a whole new way, perhaps, than than the way he had previously. And, uh, and, and also, as you mentioned, how Bob Gale, when he was coming up with the sort of germ of the idea for this script, and he found his father's high school yearbook, one of the interesting things he says in one interview is that when he was looking through it, he saw that his father was the president of his graduating class. And he remembered, Bob Gale remembered, the kid who was the president of his graduating class, and he thought he was kind of a jerk. So he's like, well, maybe was my dad a jerk in high school? So I think that's what kind of made his brain start wondering all these things like, well, maybe he wasn't the guy I thought he was back when he was in high school. What if he was a totally different kind of guy? What if he was a school bully? All these questions start to come up because we really don't know who they were, what they were like uh, when they were teenagers. And uh, I think, again, that's what makes it universally compelling for viewers because we all have those questions and here's a movie that like explores them and allows the audience to sort of dive into the deep end and really find out through this character what it would have been like to meet your parents and in fact interact with them yeah i don't have a lot to add to that i think you guys are nailing it i mean i don't necessarily think i would be friends with my dad i'll throw that out. i mean i don't think we would have i don't think we would have been enemies by any stretch of the imagination but you know, I think about where my dad was in high school and leading into his early 20s. And he was a rough, not like mean, but he was an outdoors working in surveying and traveling the United States, hitchhiking from job to job and then going to Vietnam. And just he was a very different, much like he is today, even he doesn't care about luxury. He's never cared about stuff and and things like that. And that's me to a T and it was me growing up too. So I think we would have had a very similar, not exact correlation to Marty and his dad's relationship, but I think we would have had a similar kind of disconnect in a lot of ways. I wonder, you know, what that would have been. And like you mentioned, the creativity thing, I think is great because, you know, Marty's creative in that he wants to make music. So yes, he doesn't, maybe he doesn't write science fiction, but he can relate to his dad because that is a, trait it is expressed in a different way but it is somewhat similar to a feeling and thing that is interesting to him i also now that i've watched it so many times and i watching it as an adult i get to thinking about how do we really need to know these things and you know the fact that maybe every relationship doesn't need to know everything about a person and is it important and you know it goes beyond just your parents like every single person in your life exists within a window of of space in their interactions with you. You're never going to know everything about a person. Patch and I are best friends. I have no idea 
24 hours a day is doing most days of the week if he's not specifically inviting me into every detail of his day. You know what I mean? And so there are aspects of character and personality and belief and all these things that even the closest of people will never fully know about each other because you just, you're not the same person <laughs> and it's impossible. And so I love that it makes me think about that as an adult. Like I can get all of that stuff out of it now, whereas I can watch it and just totally enjoy it without even thinking anything deeper. And, and I love movies like that. And that specific theme, I think, draws that out of me. And, and just him with his mom, I, I think is just one of the greatest setups of all time to throw that on the audience. We mentioned it a little bit earlier, but she's so hot and it's impossible to not look at her like coming on to him and be like excited by that, especially as a man and being like, I would love for that to be me. And then immediately going, oh my God, wait, no, wait, not if I'm Marty, I would not wait. No, I wouldn't want it to be me. And then immediately going, how is he dealing with it? How could he possibly, like that would break your brain. And I think it would totally freeze so many people and watching him navigate that particular experience especially considering what he is going to do in order to to eventually trigger her going to George and the decision he has to make and kind of mentally get past what he needs to do in order to accomplish that. That kind of stuff is just, it's fascinating to me because you can't, you can't see your mom like that. It's impossible. <laughs> like you cannot do it. I've tried, I've tried like kind of as a exercise to be like, I wonder, you know, I know my mom was, extremely attractive by the standards of the, you know, like I've seen old pictures of her and my dad and her sisters have talked about how you know, gorgeous she was and this and that. And I can see it, but I, I can only see it in a certain sense. Like I, I don't see her beauty in the way that my dad is expressing that she was beautiful. Then it's very, it's like looking at my daughter and saying she's beautiful and it's very different then maybe someone today might look at my daughter's boyfriend might look at her and say she's beautiful. It's just, there's a different kind of emotion behind that. And it's so interesting to, to watch it played out. And I'm, it's, it's just brilliant. I think the way that they handle it with such a careful touch, I, it could have gone so wrong and so cringy or so stupid and dorky or there's a million different ways it could have been a disaster and yet it was perfect well there are two really great scenes that i think as you mentioned aaron could have gone really awkward but stayed at the level of like not cringy at all and one's the dinner table how she how she delivers and he can sleep in my room and then you see her grab his knees and, oh i gotta go uh i gotta go <laughs> Just completely <laughs> awkward. And then, of course, the great kissing scene where she kisses him and he's all just like fetal position in the corner yeah. of the car. And she goes, I don't know what it is, but when I kiss you, it's like I'm kissing my brother. And I think those two scenes in any other movie, that can get really weird really fast. But because of the way that the scenes before it or the way those scenes are set up, especially when we get into that car scene where He's realizing this stuff about his mom. Jeez, you smoke too? You know, what's the deal? Oh my gosh, my mom's got all these vices. And and it's all played for laughs. But I think it it addresses things that, you know, we've had those kinds of like, what if I did meet my mom and would, would I think of her as hot? I mean, would she, I don't like to think about that because it's just weird to me. <laughs> but at some point, 
my son is going to grow up, my wife, as she gets older, she's always going to be beautiful to me. And even now people look at her and they look at me and they're like, man, did you rob the cradle? I'm like, no, she did. You know, she's four years older than me, but she doesn't look it. And I'm going to realize that, oh my gosh, I see beauty in my wife that my son's going to be like, ew, (laughs) she's not pretty. She's my mom. And I think the Back to the Future really elevates that on a comedic level where we are sort of told, we're, we're sort of shown, hey, parents were beautiful. Parents were in love. Parents kind of frolic. They fooled around and they did these things. And But Back to the Future really kind of takes that idea or takes that sort of tabooness and it puts it front and center and it plays it in a way that feels very accessible and very entertaining. I also thought when I'm looking at how everything resolves, Marty wakes up and for him, in terms of duration, only a week has passed between when he left and when he came back. I just, I wonder how his relationship with his parents changes. Obviously, he sees them differently, but does he now have to be careful like Doc was careful for 30 years and saying things? But I also have to realize that he didn't experience those next 30 years with them. He experienced a week in their life where they fell in love, like they fell in love just for different reasons. And now he gets to reap the benefit of that. So it does make me wonder how his relationship with them is altered. Does he say something? Remember when I told you? Oh, wait, gotta wait. I can't say that because you know you don't remember me telling. And I also, like most people who who have fun criticism with this movie, are like, how do they not know that he looks just like the guy that they met thirty years ago? And you know, whatever, it doesn't matter because as everything else that we've mentioned, it doesn't matter. The movie itself plays so perfectly that those are questions that get asked 40 views later that I imagine Bob Gale is just like, yeah, let's have coffee and talk about that because I think those are fun questions. And I think you can argue that if you met somebody when you were 17 in high school for five days and you weren't with them all the time, but you were like, you know, seeing them a few times a day, would you really remember them 30 years later if your son and, and especially if your child gradually grew and kind of res- faintly, res- you might maybe in the back of my mind, he kind of looks like that kid I remember meeting in, when I was 17 in high school, but you wouldn't, you don't have a picture of him. You don't have any, any way of comparing them. So it, I just think most people's memories, I mean, I try to think back at some of the people that I knew for longer than a week in high school. I can't even remember what they were. <laughs> look like. So I think our memories get fuzzy over the years, especially if it's only a a passing encounter like he had with them. We've talked about a lot of things and I want to make sure before we start wrapping this up, was there anything else that maybe I've missed that you guys want want to bring up? I don't want to miss things that we might want to cover, but if there's anything else, hold it out now or we'll forever hold our peace or at least until our next episode. I'll just say that when I was in college taking film classes, This was in the late 90s. Uh, The film department where I went to school in Rochester, they invited Harry Karamidis to come speak to our class. And he is one of the two editors that edited Back to the Future. And I remember listening to him, meeting him and listening to him talk about editing and the art of editing and how what a challenging and important role the editor has in sort of discovering a film and shaping a film. And it really made me fall in love with the art of editing after hearing him speak. It was really inspiring. So it's just another little tiny connection to this movie that kind of maybe pushed my life in the direction that that it ultimately went in. Because meeting those types of people at certain ages, I think, can be really important in shaping who you become. 
and he just was an inspiring guy. It's uh, a, another connection to this film that I will always, always have. And then in 2015, you, you mentioned the 30th anniversary, how you got to see all three films. I um, was at the Washington West Film Festival in, in 2015. I was, uh, I had a short film that I produced with screening. So they invited me to come and do a Q&A. And it happened to be the same festival that they were doing a big celebration for Back to the Future for the 30th anniversary. And they were screening the first film and they had Christopher Lloyd, Claudia Wells, and Bob Gale was there. And they did a Q&A afterwards. We got to meet them, say hi. Claudia Wells, of course, was the first Jennifer who got recast. We'll talk about that more later. But um, it was just an amazing thing. And they had a uh, DeLorean parade out in front of the theater. So like every DeLorean that somebody owned in like a 50 mile radius came and brought their DeLorean <laughs> to the theater and parked it out front. So you could kind of sit in a DeLorean and check a DeLorean out in person. And I still kind of want one, I have to say. <laughs> I've always wanted one, but maybe one day I'll actually get one. I'm proud of the three little die cast ones that I have in my office that represent the three yes. movies. And there's one from this company named Eagle Moss. They do a lot of these big, giant kind of intricate models. But as I've read more about them, it's a subscription base. And for that model in particular, if you get all the issues over the course of like three years, it totals to about $2,000. And I'm like, I can't make that kind of investment. <laughs> as much as I love, I'll just, I'll take my die cast, you know, smaller versions of that. So that's yeah, very cool. Yeah. That's very cool, Adam. It was a fun, uh, you know, for a fan of this film, it was fun to have that ex and to get to see the first film on the big screen, which I never got to do in its initial release. So I have, in fact, seen all three of them on the big screen, just 30 years apart. <laughs> yeah, just check it <laughs> yeah. off the bucket list. Let's get right, exactly. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us for this episode. Obviously, stay tuned for episodes 300.2 and 0.3 as we cover the rest of the trilogy. Adam, uh, if people are going to stop here, which they shouldn't, but if they do, where can they get to uh, know you, talk more about this film uh, on social media? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm on Twitter, at Adam Rakoff, and that's my only social media presence. I know that a lot of people have for years been trying to get me on Facebook, and, I, and now I'm kind of like, no, I can't do that anymore, and especially now that they're changing the name. I'm like, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's too late for me. I'm beyond, I'm, I'm beyond help. So I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I try to follow and respond to, to people that follow me. And so, yeah, anyone wants to geek out about Back to the Future, about all those little details, I'm just a huge fan of all the, those little moments. Uh, like I was saying earlier, like Twin Pines Mall and Lone Pine Mall, those little things that you don't see in the first viewing, I just get a kick out of that. And like you said, in Marvel films, same thing. I love rewatching the MCU films for that very reason. I love finding all the little threads and all the little details and all the little callbacks to the comics. Just, it's what makes reviewing movies over and over again and more enjoyable. And I think it's very rewarding if you're a fan like me who likes to rewatch movies multiple times to get all those those little Easter eggs. Wait, wait, wait. I literally did not connect the dots earlier when you said Twin Pines Mall when we were talking oh, you about did? Easter eggs. So because Marty took out the tree? There were two pine trees and he tried to... The, oh my the father, God. <laughs> fired at the DeLorean. That's brilliant. Yes, yes. It's like in the corner of the frame, but you see him run up towards uh, the mall and it says Lone Pine Mall. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. No, I never... Are, yeah, this is great. We have these moments, rarely do we have these moments yeah. where Aaron goes... Oh. <laughs> 
Uh, right. Mind blown. You, yeah, yeah. Watch Passengers and then listen to our episode because it's amazing when it happens on that one. It's one of my favorite moments in our podcast history. Is nice. like, wait, what? Like the brakes just we pumped the brakes and he that was awesome. Back. I had that no was idea. Great. Yeah, was yeah. Great. So and good. then Doc Brown's little comment about old man Peabody. He had this crazy idea about breeding pine trees. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> This is weird, That's but it all connects, amazing. right? Oh, yeah, it works. Amazing. Oh, it's so good. Anyway. So. All right. Well, thank you guys for a fantastic conversation, obviously. Thank this you. Is, no, it's great. This is, uh, this is like, like the VHS version of the movie. This will be to be continued. So <laughs> here we go. We won't need roads where we're going either. So we'll talk to you guys soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group very active in both places and would love to chat and if you want to connect with me you can find me at shoeless patch on both facebook and twitter be sure to tag me in any comments so that i'll be notified and not miss you once again thank you for listening we'll be back soon until then stay positive and keep feeling filmed